I'm not alone of being the hard worker out there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, maybe maybe part of it is I remember vividly, you know, in, in my college years kind of being like, what's the point? Like, why am I even here? I, I remember, you know, leaving for a service mission for a couple of years right during kind of the dot-com beginning of the boom and being like, I'm going to miss it. Like, it's all going to be over when I get back. And, you know, I was back in 2001 and was like, why am I, you know, here, you know, at college? But I didn't know what else to be doing. But I remember thinking, I'm just, I'm gonna. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Sam Maloof. Sam, thanks for doing this. Good to be here. Uh, and thanks for, for hosting yeah, the setup. This is great. Hopefully this looks okay. So I know a bunch of things about you because a bunch of the people that I have huge amounts of respect for have a lot of respect for you. But how do you introduce yourself when, when people don't know your background? Hmm. That's a good question. So we have a home furnishings company here. That's, that's kind of the core of what we do. We're a product company. We manufacture and design and distribute pretty much everything in your home except for you know appliances. And we have a foundation that we care a lot about that really, I think, unifies the people and purpose of, of people here and is, is a shared, I think, passion for all of us to help other people to try to change some societal challenges that we have. That's exciting. That, that was a longer, longer than an elevator pitch. But yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. This is kind of a fun interview for me because our, you know, our viewers know all about child rescue and we try to have survivors and different people involved in the cause on and your foundation has been doing great things. I've heard a ton about you guys and we've just never had a chance to meet. So yeah, super good. excited to talk a lot about that, but, but also on the business side, like just rapid, rapid success. It's really admirable what you guys have accomplished. Thanks. Can you give people a little bit of scope of the, like, you know, how, how this ramp up has gone in the last handful of years? Yeah, well, it's gone really well. Sometimes when we say rapid, I'm like, well, it's been 20 years, but it's been, it's all been part of the, you know, part of the journey. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so kind of our story is that what we're looking for. So, so yeah, so we started making bed sheets about 18 years ago and it was kind of a random idea that came from a shopping trip for just for my wife, Casey and I, we were setting up our apartment after we got married and uh, what we found felt overpriced and kind of underpresented, underdelivered. So that's where things started. We, we thought we'd make some sheets, sell them and try to make 1500 bucks a month so that uh, my wife didn't have to work at the, at the uh, waitressing job at a, at a, at a buffet that she didn't love. Right. So that was the, that was the motive. It was just the two of us for about six or seven years. Um, we, you know, made a good income and it was successful and I think we'd probably gotten to the point where the two of us probably weren't going to take it a lot further. And uh, so we kind of took the leap of faith of hiring a person and saw that whole vision unfold in a, in a pretty wild way to where now there's about 1,600 of us. And the business is, you know, transformed into a lot of different products and a lot of different, a lot of different areas of discipline as well. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. Yeah. And so those 1,600 staff across how many locations? So we have, so our headquarters here, we have about 500 people here. And then we have five main distribution centers we own across the United States, Ohio, North and South Carolina, Texas, and then California. There's about a hundred employees in each of those locations. And then there are another about 600 employees of Down East. So Down East is the, is the retailer that uh, retails home furnishings and, and uh, women's fashion apparel. And they're distributed between about 45 stores. So, okay. When you think about 
the principles of like endurance and sticking with it so long that you eventually have the big hockey stick of growth. So many people can talk about that, but what's something, what's an aspect of that that you feel like doesn't get covered in the business press or that's not just in the business books out there that, that really sticks out to you having lived it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So sometimes what I think about is, is a few things on that, on that spectrum. One is, is liking what you do. We always liked it. Like when we were, you know, hawking sheets, you know, out of our apartment, you know, making a sale and making 50 bucks, like that was really exciting. And it didn't really stop being exciting. Things scaled and changed. So it wasn't like a grind, I think for us. And I I don't think it really ever has been. I mean, there's parts of your day and of days that nobody likes. And there's parts about, you know, going through you know, an email inbox of 200 that I don't like, but then there's some really cool things that you get a senior inbox. Right. So, so I think part of it is, is finding a satisfaction balance. Right. And that's kind of what we had the whole time. So that's maybe one thing I would say is, is it's not just a, Hey, just keep, you know, just keep working. Even if you don't like it, like you need to find something like it, even if maybe it's still the same thing. Right. So I think there's a lot of perspective uh, on that and just some positive optimism that goes along with it. And then I think too, that along with that, maybe this is a little bit of a paradox on this is there's just some things that are just really hard work. And that's, I mean, I think when we go back, we look at why it was successful. There was a lot of timing that was on our side. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of market competitive timing that worked out for us, but if we wouldn't have worked hard and that was what was in our control, we knew that was in our control. If we wouldn't have worked as hard as we could have when everything was about to break many times over, it wouldn't have worked. So that's, that's just the, just the, the hard work grit I think is real, but I think the satisfaction can be there the whole time. So, yeah, you know, uh, I'm interested in your choice of becoming a B Corp. I've, we've had yeah. other people on the show, Davis Smith from Cotopoxy, different yeah, folks. Great. What was, well, for people who don't know what it is, can you give people just a glimpse and then can you talk about your decision to go that direction? Yeah. I'll give you my, kind of my interpretation of what it's been for us, right? Yeah. What B Corp's meant for us. So there's a lot of just by nature of the fact that we started the company when we were like in our early twenties, we didn't know what we were doing. There was no one backing us. We didn't have a plan <laughs> to, to do this. We were just trying to trying to hustle, make some money, you know, have some fun. So there's a lot of things that came out in the company that we didn't design. We didn't intend on. It was just organic, really just organic. And so I don't have a lot of, you know, justification for it. And we did this because we were inspired by this. We just did, did stuff that felt right. So I think when, when we learned about what B Corps were and we were like, oh, that's kind of an alignment with what we do. We focus on those things. It seemed like a really obvious connection point. It wasn't a big stretch or reach for us to be like, now we're going to try to learn to care about these things. They were things that we, we already cared about. We're already demonstrated some of those principles. And I was supposed to identify what a B Corp is. So Maybe that brings us to a good point there. So B Corps, I mean, it's a it's a tax code delineation, and then you can certify, which is an independent certification where they, you know, the B Corp organization actually takes you through a very extensive process where they kind of measure what your intentions are. And that's that's what I'd say is it's not about being perfect. We're not a perfect company. There's a lot of things we can improve on, a lot of things we can do better. Same thing with for, you know, all companies. But but there's a commitment that was more, you know, that was memorialized when we became certified that said, we're really going to do this. We're going to keep doing this and we're going to keep getting better. And so that's what I've kind of felt like is it's it's pointing in a direction that you are continuing along, you know, kind of your own pace getting better. And specifically it's with respect to not just being a business that's, you know, in the business of making money, but you're also taking care of the planet and people. And so those were things that we were kind of already doing. A lot of people do those. And it's a, it's a great thing to commit 
too, and I think it's a great community to be involved with. So yeah. That's great. You know, well, and let's talk about some of those things that you're doing for good. Obviously, we're a huge fan of anybody who's helping with child trafficking and child yeah. exploitation. When did you guys decide this is going to be our, our lead cause? Yeah, so we made betting. So it was it was there was an obvious fit for a long time in supporting people that were in difficult, you know, scenarios whether it was from, you know, domestic abuse or you know, foster child's, you know, scenario. A lot of these a lot of these different opportunities we had to contribute betting because it's what shelters and different living situations need. And so it was easy for us. We got requests all the time. We contributed and we didn't I think it was a while until we really understood, hey, here's who's there and here's why they're there. And that's when we really start becoming more educated about what trafficking is and that it's here and it's in our communities and it happens um, to people of all walks of life and to kids, you know, particularly. So I think when there's a certain level of learning and awareness and belief and education that happens and then, uh, you know, I think if you're probably a pretty regular human being, you don't forget that and you're going to continue forward. We recognize in our case, you know, I think we had a stewardship over a group of people that would listen and kind of follow where we would lead and also in our industry. And so we said, Hey, we've got a, we've got a stage on both sides and let's go beyond just giving betting away. Let's, let's become more educated and let's figure out, you know, what components are missing in the fight and how we can help. So that was, you know, that was the turning point for us about five and a half years ago. We started, started the foundation of continued supporting a lot of organizations because it's a big, it's a big consortium of people globally that work on this. It's not one group or another. And that's, what's great is there's a lot of room for everybody. And so we continue to support organizations and we've, and we developed a bunch of initiatives that, that we've, you know, that we've really brought up and, and are trying to, trying to take out there. So, so 2016 to today, You've, you've done a lot, you've learned a lot, you've met a lot of people. As that has progressed, I'm sure, you know, it's like compound interest of knowledge and connections yeah. and stuff. What what are kind of the initiatives you're most excited about right now at the foundation? Yeah. And this so, is, what's the website for the foundation? So it's maloofoundation.org. Okay. That's that's the, the main place to go. So so our we focus on, you know, the umbrella of protecting children from child sexual exploitation. So it's, that's that's the main, the, the main focus. And when we, you know, when we became aware, that was the turning point for us. So that was, that's, that's tenant number one for us is education awareness. And so one of the things that we found that was missing for the general population was an education. Like, how do you learn about this? You know, do you watch movies, do you read books, you know, what, what do you do? So we, we've, the kind of the unique thing about our foundation is it's, it's an appendage of our for-profit company that's, that has a lot of internal resources, a lot of amazing talent, skill, capability, and expertise in, you know, in marketing and messaging. So that was one of our first initiatives is creating a program called OnWatch. You can go to imonwatch.org and you can see all the information there, but it's a, it's a video training. It's broken up into about 13 five-minute segments. So it's pretty, pretty easy and quick to go through. You can start and stop where you want. But the unique uh, part about it is it's, 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 it's led from the perspective of survivors in America of sex trafficking. And it's their perspectives. In some cases, they're actually even the actors in, in some of the uh, segments. They're, they're advising on the script because the, it's their stories. And I think when people you know go through the training and become certified, they learn a lot about the realities they didn't know existed about like when you hear it happens in your town, people are like how, like, where is this happening? And it, it shows how it happens and how people don't even know what's happening to them. So that's, that's a really important part of the foundation. There's other education initiatives. The second tenant is healing. So that's kind of where we started. We started by supporting, you know, restorative care facility, people that were, you know, that had been rescued or that were trying to get back on their feet again. And so 
Uh, we do that through a variety of ways, supporting different facilities. But we're actually we announced earlier this year that we're building the first restorative care facility in Utah for uh, girls ages 11 to 18 uh, that are survivors of sex trafficking. So that's that's um, amazing. Yeah, so thanks for doing that. Yeah, yeah. So we're excited about that and. Beyond that, we want to really build a model that can be replicated throughout the United States. So we see models throughout the world in very undeveloped countries that are more cohesive than sometimes we see here in the United States. And so that's that's an interesting thing to look at. Uh, there's a huge deficiency of residential care facilities here in the United States. There's maybe around 700 beds here, and the theory is that we need 100,000 to really address the issue. So. So we're trying to, you know, start that model and build it here in Utah where there's a lot of really great support in the space. And then lastly is justice. So we work we work with uh, survivors, with law enforcement, and with child and family advocacy, advocacy centers to help both the survivors and victims as well as changing legislative policy, sentencing conviction rates and success rates to try to address, address it on the enforcement side of things. So those are the, the main areas. There's a lot of programs spliced between there. But I, the best way to get, you know, from our perspective, more educated on the topic is take the on-watch train. It takes about an hour, and you're, you're far on your way to having more perspective. So, Well, I'm interested. I'm, I'm really excited to see you guys covering all those different aspects of it. For me, I feel like it's, it's unhelpful to the cause when when people get too polarized of like after you know aftercare is the only thing that matters those other things are incidentals yeah. or the survivor's voice is the only thing that matters it's so yeah. important but it's not the only thing yeah. or or just the law enforcement side when like how could this not be stronger together yeah, yeah. I, I i it really does get under my skin the like yeah. no we're it's you know it's only us you know folks who went to university for social work we know best yeah, yeah. Let's have the rest of you come sit at our kneel at our feet and and we'll let you know how it's going to go or you know anything's like that. <laughs> sure. Um, and and I'm especially the law enforcement side. I, if anybody, I see them a lot of times pushed out of the conversation or with how politically polarized this country has gotten. Sometimes they don't get invited to the table and things. Yeah. What, what are you guys doing on the law enforcement assistant sides? Yeah. So yeah, and I I respect your opinion on that. I think it's a really good point. It's it's kind of part and party to some nonprofit work, right? Where, you know, I, I know it's a, it's a unique case probably with in both of our scenarios where our foundation doesn't exist if we get donations. It just exists and we can augment and accelerate what we're doing with, you know, with participation from more people. So it does kind of create some, some, some barriers at times, I think. But I, and it's also interesting as you look at the whole spectrum, there's so many different solution points but we need all of them, right? We don't need one of them. Yeah. And so even for our foundation, sometimes it's it's challenging to, we don't want to pick, you know, because we, we have some ideas. But at the same time, we don't want to recreate solutions either. I mean, there's so many people working on it. That's one of the big concerns we have is that we're investing in an area and saying, hey, you know, get on board here. If someone else is already doing it better, we want to be aware of that. So that's that's something that we could do together as a as a force is identifying you know, who's leading an area. Yeah. Let's just support that instead of reinventing it and having five different options. So beyond yeah, law enforcement. So I agree with you hundred percent law enforcement, you know, the foster care network, CPS, I mean, all these people, they're on the front lines. I mean, they are the ones that are work with the victims, work with survivors. They, they see how complex the scenario is and it's easy on the outside to judge sometimes what happens there. So we've done, we've done, we've done, and we're doing a few things. So one of the things we're working on in Utah right now is, is, kind of amassing a body of work of what, you know, the conviction rates are, what sentencing guidelines are, what is actually happening in the courts. 
and trying to work towards some better better policy there. There's some states and, and some of the federal guidelines lead um, by a long way over Utah, as an example. We really want to, we're here and we really want to help everywhere in the United States, but we feel like it's important to build a model. And so there's some things to fix. So we're working with our government relations team and with you know a lot of our political connections to, as well as the law enforcement connections to understand what's happening and what needs to change to align with a better model that already exists, right? So that's that's one thing. Working with children's justice centers and CJC's child advocacy centers, so there's a lot of law enforcement crossover there. So it's that's that helps law enforcement do their job, uh, you know, better, and it helps it helps you know it helps prosecute better, and it helps recovery of, of, of victims and survivors better. Another area that we're currently working on is supporting law enforcement in specifically online predator work. And so we feel, again, with what we've learned about, that it's a pretty disjointed process, you know, nationally as well as statewide. There's just not the resources. There's not shared best practices. And I, and I think to your point about law enforcement, they're the ones that need a lot of the support. But the system isn't set up to form any sort of cohesion around them. So that's where I think, you know, the private sector can come in and say, hey, we, we'll make this our job. You guys keep doing your job. Let's share best practices. So currently we're working to lace together a lot of online predator, you know, work and you know, a lot of the, the undercover and detective work that happens there and help. There's, there aren't that many, that many uh, departments throughout the country that are leading in that area because the resources aren't there. And we know there's a big challenge in law enforcement hiring right now. So we've, we've found some key leaders there. We're trying to trying to build a curriculum from for what they're doing and then build trainings for that for law enforcement groups throughout the country. So that's another initiative that we're working on that, that supports that area. Oh, that's super exciting. I think about, you know, my wife and I talk about this. Like I'm I'm so excited about your facility, by the way. Oh cool. I like I think like my wife, you know, she's raised by a trafficker by a trafficking victim. And, you know, my mother in law as a survivor who you know, we we had her move in with us for four years after my father in law passed away and you know, she broke the cycle from four generations in their family. And she basically did that on her own. So she was, her mom kind of abandoned her in a hotel when she was 13. And she kind of lived on the streets of LA. And you can guess what self-medicating on the streets of LA looks like. Kind of lived under yeah. the pier in Santa Monica. And and she was able to break that cycle on her own so it didn't happen to my wife, right? But that could have been so much easier yeah. if folks like you had existed back then. And so... I feel like I can either like cry over spilled milk or be excited for the future that your amazing foundation is doing stuff like this now. And, and again, helping the law enforcement to have found the guys who are hurting my mother-in-law and then got her into a facility like that could have just, there's so much pain. It's like so much unnecessary suffering could have been prevented. And I look at it as will be because of you guys. So, so thanks from us to you. Well, thanks. That's an incredible story. Um, Maybe switching gears a bit back on the business side. When you think about just experiences from growing up that you've had, how do you think that the way you grew up turned out to be an advantage for the business you built? It's a good good question. Um, so let me tell you how I grew up. So yeah, I mean, this is kind of cliche, I think, to say this. A lot of people say this, but like I grew up, in, you know, I think, you know, lower middle class, right? I mean, it's like, I don't usually say we grew up poor because I mean, I think we had what we needed, but, but that was kind of the environment I grew up in. And this is, you know, it's back in the eighties when, you know, we were working and hustling, but you know, I, I grew up kind of with the, with a uh, understanding of like, if I wanted something that if I wanted something, I was going to have to take care of that. Right. So, I mean, I bought my clothes. I, you know, paid for stuff that I did. It's probably a familiar story, right? Yeah. Well, and so 
when did you move from Utah? How yeah, old were you? So I was four. Yeah, okay. when I was four, so I was, you know, four years old, and we lived in Kansas for 10 years. That's that's uh, where I was as a child. But yeah, I mean, I did, had a lot of different jobs, kind of found different ways to weird ways. I, I what, to, what are examples of I your jobs? I used to breed dogs when I was really? a kid. So I, so I bought a dog to breed when I was 10. What, what kind of dog? And it was a golden retriever. Yeah, good so choice. Good choice. Sold them for a hundred bucks a puppy, which you know nowadays there's there's no hundred dollar puppies. But, but yeah, yeah, all all sorts of things like paper routes and lawn mowing businesses and babysitting and you know all those things. So, um, but yeah, I mean I think there was a there was an ownership component to that and you know work ethic you know piece that's you know part of me, part of you know a lot of us that, that stuck with it where there was just kind of an initiative. But along with that, it wasn't when you talk about entrepreneurship and just kind of spinning something up. It it takes some other pieces that have to come together right, and I totally recognize that. So I was there as the play, you know, as the operator, but but you know, we we you know we ran into the right thing at the right time that, that worked out, and you know, some other things that worked out was mowing lawns, but it was on a different level, right? So, yeah. Anyway, right. so work I think is what I'd sum it up as. You know, it's it's funny because I have a sense for what you mean, but like I don't know anybody who would say they don't work hard. Yeah, <laughs> and yet, you know. I get to meet all these cool people on the show or just in daily life who, who've achieved so much more than average. And there is like, there is like a willingness to maybe push harder and balanced with, you know, I, I used to work like I wanted to snowboard without having a job during the year. So I'd work like terrible construction jobs or on the, <laughs> or the gas pipeline or whatever to like make enough money all at once so that I could snowboard the whole year without yeah. having a job. Right. And I know guys there who worked really hard. Like you don't talk hard work. They really yeah. put the hard work. But like you said, the lawn mowing thing, they didn't have that aspect of hard work at what, Yeah. you know, and they weren't constantly thinking of how can we, how can I extend my leverage of getting the most for every hour that I'm working over and yeah. over and over. And a bunch of them are still in construction yeah. 20 years later, right? At, it's fair. Yeah. you know, not that better of a situation than when I was working with them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in any nuances mm-hmm. of like hard work, absolutely matters but hard work at the right thing is so critical too do you have any thoughts about that as people are trying to evaluate am i working hard on the right thing yeah it's good founder entrepreneur yeah got these big visions how can i get really honest with myself of like is this really the right thing to be working so hard on yeah that's a good question yeah and i think you make some really good points about you know you know i'm not alone of being the hard worker out there right i mean there's a lot of you know maybe maybe part of it is i remember vividly you know, in, in my college years, kind of being like, what's the point? Like, why am I even here? I, I remember, you know, leaving for a service mission for a couple of years right during kind of the dot-com beginning of the boom and being like, I'm going to miss it. Like, it's all going to be over when I get back. And, you know, I was back in 2001 and was like, why am I, you know, here, you know, at college? But I didn't know what else to be doing. But I remember thinking, I'm just, I'm going to just do my thing and be paying attention to what's around me. You know, and I I kind of felt like, you know, that was something that I was probably somewhat adept to is just opportunistic thinking and watching for the opportunities. So maybe that's one thing I'd say is not everything is probably worth the same level of input, but when it's right. And you've, I mean, we even still do that in business now where we're like, okay, this put all the chips on the table, slide them over. It's time. Right. And I think that's, that partly is what we did. I mean, I, I worked hard, but I remember doing a lot more fishing before this idea came up and doing some <laughs> other things. And then, you know, then this came along and it was like, this is it, let's go all in. And we went in all in for a lot of years and, you know, I'd say somewhat still are. So maybe it's, 
maybe it's accepting the fact that you've got to look for the opportunities, but they're not all there. Like they're not, all of them are not going to yield the same, even with the, you know, the right amount of hard work. So probably depends a little bit what you want, what you're looking for, what the balance looks like. But I think it's also identifying when it's time to like go all the way. And we see that today, even with, you know, a lot of the businesses we get involved with is there's some that you're like, this is a, this is a perfect setup. Everything's set up here. So the answer is yes. Every time, like this has got to go to the finish line and other ones that you say, Hey, we'll just kind of play this out. I don't know if that does anything, but. That's interesting. Didn't, you know, didn't solve the problem, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not an easy answer. Whoever else would have yeah. figured it out. But yeah. but it's such a important answer. Like you look at becoming like, you know, one of the most well-known, one of the most successful business people in the entire state. And mm-hmm. you've obviously, like everybody I talk to says there's some luck involved, but there's also some skill involved. And so as you think about some of these, some of these, like we're going all in on this one and we're going to cut bait on that yeah. one and let it go. What does your decision tree look like? How, what's what's going through your head, or is it like this much analysis, and then I go on some long walks and see how I feel about? It? Like, what, what's your process look like? Yeah, well, it's a good point. I think there, I think there is there is some education awareness level of what you're aligned with, right? What what we you know what skills and capabilities we have that would that would create value because that's what ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to synergize the inputs and create this massive value output. So I, there, that definitely exists there. There's a gut, right? I mean, there's a gut on things that's like, I feel like this can work. I've been wrong many, many, many times on the gut, but I think everybody has a certain level of that gut. So I, I love to surround myself um, with people that are trying to think and feel as well about, does this work? Does it make sense? Is it going to work? So I rely on a lot of people. Okay. So I have a question yeah. about that one. Uh, when you think about, this idea of no matter how good of advisors we have, sometimes they don't see the same vision as us. Sure. And I think about big mistakes, like my personal net worth that has done the roller coaster <laughs> over the last 20 years, right? right? And I think about some of the biggest mistakes from ignoring certain yeah. people's opinions. Like people warned me about it and I was like, no, I know better. And I took it off the cliff, right? Yeah. And then I think about other ones where everybody's like disaster, no way, Jess, you know, and they just hadn't seen what I saw and it ended up being the thing. And like yeah. two years later, they're like, I can't believe I doubted you so much. Da, da, da. <laughs> so my question for you is when you think about this, like that balance beam of like, am I arrogant in ignoring people hmm. or am I being, am I being too insecure on not trusting my gut? And like that balance beam in the middle. Yeah. Do you have any ideas for like how you, how you get to a place of calm about your decisions in the middle? Yeah. Yeah, you make a good point. Cause I mean, I'm surrounded by just amazing thinkers and people with great perspective, but, and I would say most of the time I agree. And then sometimes I'm kind of out on, out on my own, you know, I don't know. I think there's probably a component of, there is a component of you can make things work that you believe in. Right. So maybe some of those things you mentioned, some things that, you know, are successful here because people believe in it. And so they engage to a level that they're going to make it happen, even whether it's right or wrong. And it does happen. There's probably a component of that, but yeah, as far as, as far as the question was, repeat What's the your question. process yeah. of like, man, I just don't think the team is seeing it. Yeah. And I think we should do it anyways. What, what does it take for you to get there? When, when your advisors who you typically trust yeah. on things, when you're feeling like, man, they are, they're not seeing it. I think we got to do this anyways. How do you get to that place? Yeah. Oh man. Well, it's a really good question. Man, you've, you've kind of got, you've got a good one here. I, yeah, I, I believe 
there's so there's there's some perspective, right? So my role as the you know leader of the company, right? I've I've got to have perspective, so I've got to be educated. If I'm doing my job right, I'm going to be the most the broadest perspective in the whole company. So I've got the broad, the, you know, the most you know connection points and understand how things might fit together. That's if I'm doing my job right. So I think that's maybe something that tips the scales at times. But I you know thinking thinking about it, I don't. I don't, I'm not usually going against the whole grain because I feel like in our organization, I think there is alignment. I think we're mostly moving the same direction. There's some tweaks on the edges, maybe earlier on, you know, even, even, you know, even in the early days, I, I remember, you know, it was, you know, I just had one, one, well, I still just have one partner, but there's just two of us. Right. And so it's like, we didn't always align on everything. And I think there is a little bit of, maybe you don't go all in from the start, but you move forward, you see some proof of life, and then you go all, on, all in. It's fun, I think, to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, with that statement, <laughs> all the one, of our, <laughs> one of our mutual friends, Lindsay Hadley, yeah. she's, always, she's always saying, I can't remember who told her this, but she says this all the time of like, let's send the canoes, not the whole ship. Okay. Yeah. You know, if the canoe gets there, it doesn't yeah. bottom out. Let's risk the canoe, not ri- yeah. risk the whole ship to begin with. Yeah. And, and it seems like maybe there's an element of that That's there. That's a good metaphor. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So, yeah, I don't have the perfect answer on that, but I, I think amidst the perspective, I think there's still a gut, and I think sometimes the gut drives the results, right? So if everybody can get aligned on whoever's decision it is, we're going to get there. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes gut decisions get, get the short end of the stick of like – I went to a, a unique law enforcement training once yeah. where they were talking about writing reports. Sounds like a pretty simple thing, right? But it's where like a lot of cops get in a lot of trouble. Of, yeah. They didn't write a good enough report. Then a super analytical lawyer gets a hold of it and there's sure. problems, right? And he he walks through like, you know, why did you arrest that guy in the dark alley? The prosecutor says it was for no reason. And the 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 officer isn't like necessarily like on the tip of his tongue able to articulate, right? Yeah. And so this guy helps him walk through like, what are the collective elements of your years on the street that you're like, there's pattern recognition that is not a necessarily a conscious thought, but yeah. put together. So he's like, walk me through the situation. And he goes through like, oh, the guy... As soon as as soon as I came around the corner, the guy hurried up and pretended he didn't see me, and like hmm. he starts like describing all these things, yeah. and this this guy is able to help him articulate why that is one more trigger point data point. Yeah. As soon as he had enough triggers, he's like, oh, this warrants further investigation. And then when he goes to further investigate, the guy runs, you know, like, yeah. and he helps him deconstruct what went into that gut decision yeah. based on years of experience that you know that officer maybe hadn't had previous language for. Yeah. And I wonder if there's an element of that that. It gets discounted because it doesn't sound academic sure. enough, and yet it's so successful True. in so many yeah. arenas. Good point. I like it. Listen, you get interviewed a lot. What's a question people don't ask you? What's a, what's a soapbox oh, thing man. you want to talk about more? Oh, boy. question that we don't get asked. How have other people answered that question? <laughs> I'm just you know, um, sometimes people talk about family. Sometimes they talk yeah. about, like getting out of the hustle culture and like yeah. like – Guarding some solitude or talking about, you know, the money was supposed to be great. And then when you get there, like, it's not enough. You still need a life, yeah, you know, yeah. or like they, the things that aren't as sexy for the business press to cover is what I usually get. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I, maybe what I would say is, and, and you're even doing some of this, which is very kind and, and complimentary, but you know, I think, I think people, I sometimes feel like people, you know, over glamorize me. Right. So if I if I allow or am blind to or help make a bunch of bad decisions over the next two years and this whole company goes down, like I'm I'm the worst leader ever, right? And all similarly, if I don't make those bad decisions and we still go down in two years, 
I'm the worst leader ever, right? And if we survive by, you know, you know, just good decision making, management, and some forces, some external forces that are in our favor, I'm, a, I'm just, I'm a genius, right? I've, I've, you know, done this whole thing, but I haven't done the whole thing. It's a lot of people that have done it together. So, you know, I was, I, I, I didn't ever intend to do this. It wasn't ever the plan to do this. I wasn't trained to do this. And my, sometimes I think you ask yourself, you know, would I be hired to do this job? even given my current situation, or am I just here because I have the power to be here? I'm in control, right? So I think those are some interesting things to ask. But that's that's one of the things that I've I've witnessed with other leaders is if everything's good, you know, they're they walk on water. If everything's bad, whether it's their fault or not, they are they're the worst, you know. And it's kind of an interesting thing. And you know, I hope we're not teetering on that edge. But sometimes I feel like that's not <laughs> very equitable judgment on both sides. So, you know, it should take the, you know, the glamorizing down a little bit and probably lift up the, Hey, they're terrible because they weren't able to succeed. So I don't know. There's one. Yeah. I think it's a good one. I think, I think about myself and failings I've had on that side of like when I've wanted to feel important and I was doing really well, you get supplied with a lot of it. You get (laughs) like, I feel like I got supplied with a lot of evidence that I was one of the special people. So if I wanted (laughs) to believe that people are, people are treating me different. I get things that other people didn't get. And there's all this evidence that somehow, uh, somehow I'm a special person. And like, then like the easy leap into like, if you want to believe that and you're supplied with evidence and then you, then you become like that, you become a version of yourself that yeah. you wouldn't be proud of. Right. Yeah. It's, it's such an easy trap. If, you know, we have any hole in our lives, like, you know, when I was 10, I moved from a city of a million where skateboarding, where neon was cool. Mm-hmm. This is 1990 when you were there 10. We right? And I moved to this little farm town of 3,500 people were wearing plaid and playing football was cool. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I wasn't one of the cool kids anymore. And like, yeah. if I, if I'm holding on to my herd of being discounted by the cool kids and that lasts into adulthood, yeah. you know, I can easily fall into these traps. Yeah, Should yeah. I, you know, I feel like those are some of the things I've had to overcome for yeah. myself at least. Yeah. I guess that's, that's good. Good perspective. Yeah, I think that one, I didn't really give you a question to ask me. But on those same lines, I think sometimes people make assumptions that exclude normalcy for somebody in a leadership you know, position like me. So it's like, you know, I go home and, you know, wipe the counter, you know, and, you know, it's like, you know, if, if somebody here invited me to dinner, I'd go to dinner with them because it's not like I have a, you know, a a, a lineup of, you know, all these people waiting to do things with me, you know, socially. So that's, I think that's another interesting factor is just like, you know, like I feel normal. Sometimes I hear from people that they don't think I'm normal. And then I'm like, but I am, I think I'm normal, but you know, you have to have some self-recognition for where you're positioned, but yeah. Interesting. So you're, you're great head of PR Beth, who's listening into us here off camera. Yeah. Try, uh, try not to look at she, her. She, yeah, right. So she was talking about, you know, Coming here three years ago, there was like 200 people, yeah. and now there's 1,600. Yeah, yeah. When you think about that level of rapid scaling, what have you found effective as far as getting the right kind of talent to want to come over? Because eight, you know, 800% growth in employees in that period of time, it's, it's a different animal, right? Yeah, sure. There's a little bit of slide on that acquisition sure. and some change. But even just here at the headquarters, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more than doubled in that time period. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think when we look at – I've said this a little bit in the last couple of years where if we – you know, this is not a single-led company. You know, I, I'm not involved in everything and don't, you know, control everything and, and so forth. To, to your point – if we don't get the right people here, we will cease to exist. 
Like that's that's the reality. If we if we have ninety percent people here that are not aligned, like we will fall out for sure. So that puts a lot of pressure, I think, on hiring managers and on the hiring process. And so, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of obvious things that a lot of companies you know focus on from you know benefits and perks and comforts and, and different things, and we do a lot of that. But I think part of it is just being being us, right? I mean, that's kind of what we've done. A lot of the time is we've just been authentic and genuine in, in who we are and what we're doing. And I think people can sniff that out really easily. I mean, I think they know if you're BSing them. I think they know if you're if you're if you don't really care and you're just putting it on for show. So I think being authentic and again, even if we didn't have all those comforts, but we were real and genuine to people, I think we'd still have the advantage of having all the, all the comforts of people being like, well, they're really trying to manipulate me and you know they they're just trying to control what I do and things like that. So, so yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure to do it right. And I think that you've got to be real because, you know, they say today people are more, you know, aware than they were before. I don't know if that's the case, but it just seems like that's the vibe. So people are kind of a little bit more, I think, skeptical of authenticity. Well, I always like to ask people's staff questions about them when they're not around and a compliment to your leadership, a bunch of your staff before you got here, were talking about how, they feel like you guys really believe what your foundation is doing and you're actually leaving it and cool. that that's the reason they like working here and that they think a bunch of other people work here because of that. Cool. And so if you're manipulating people, it's working, yeah. <laughs> but uh, apparently you're not. And, yeah, that's uh, good to hear. You know, going back to this previous question, maybe a different version of it is when you think about we need a key leader, we need somebody exceptional, and for whatever reason, we got to look for that outside the organization. How do you think about sifting through the people that interview really well versus the people you really are willing to take that risk on? Yeah, we get a lot of referrals here. I mean, it's kind of nice as your network broadens, people know people that know people. And just like you said early on, you know some people here that you trust. And, you know, I know a lot of people that I trust too. And if they believe in somebody else, so there there can be a tendency to, you know, to be too, you know, to have too neutral of, you know, of an organization that way as well, if it's all coming from referrals from the inside. But that's an element that I think can help. When you talk about interviewing, I mean, we, I think we've all had those scenarios where we, you know, somebody doesn't maybe yield quite as well as we thought they would yield. The irony is always that you can't go ask their current employer for a referral. It's now we see it interesting internally because we have a lot of people that, apply for jobs that are already internal. And that's a rule here is both managers have to be able to openly dialogue about the, you know, so we get that advantage on the inside, which is kind of interesting, but I, I don't know. Again, I, th- I think it's, I think it's trying to understand the person, not just what they're saying and not what they're saying they can do. But I think a lot of people, I mean, I think we have, you know, I think I'm an example of this. I think a lot of people in the organization are an example. Of this is like, I wasn't destined to do this. I wasn't, it wasn't a great setup. I mean, yeah, I mean, I had some good, you know, upbringing that, that set me up for this, but it's, there's a, you know, there's a desire and a drive to be able to adapt and, you know, be moldable and learn and, and, and things like that. So I think you can kind of, I think you can gain that talking to somebody maybe more easily than what they tell you they can do. You know? Yeah. Well, um, I think one of your big wins is getting Clay Olson to come yeah, over yeah. here. I'm such a Clay Olson <laughs> fan. Me too. And, and and what's funny is I will tell on him. He has like really exceptional things to say about you when you're not around. Oh. And he didn't know I was going to tell you. So <laughs> okay. you're doing Boy. something right there. Listen, this has been great. Anything that you think would be fun to cover before before we close it off here today? Hey, I thought you were going to get into Clay Olson. So I'll make that plug real quick. Okay. We internally, Clay, Clay, who Clay Olson is, we can get into that more deeply later. But he is, he is one of the purest cause activists I've ever met as far as somebody that 
legitimately is trying to figure out how to help people just, and that's it. <laughs> you know, I do, I do some of that, but I have to focus on some other things as well. And that is his pure raw focus. And so Clay started fighting the new drug about 12 years ago, about six years ago, started creating solutions for mental health challenges and then formed a company around that. And it's a company, but it's really a social drive. He, you know, sold the entire company to us a couple of years ago so that we could help nurture and can carry it forward. And so he and I were trading like CEO coaching of each other through oh, that whole okay. process from, from starting in fact, collective through selling to you. Oh, wow. So I got to hear the whole, you know, I got to hear oh, it live over the so years. You've got, the, you yeah. got the, the inside uh, baseball on this, but, but yeah. And I mean, just kind of how everything went was again, demonstrative to us of, of, of him, who he was and what he actually intended to do. And that's, that's kind of interesting too. Like I, I really enjoy bumps in relationships and in business transactions because it sometimes exposes intent. And it's kind of nice when there's big challenges. We're like, I just like to sit back and be like, cool, we'll see how this plays out and then we'll know the truth, right? But anyway, back to Clay. So we, Impact Suite is a collection of mental health that are digitally driven, but they're also, you know, they're also flanked with coaching, teletherapy, you know, counseling, community, all this, all this great stuff. And it's really impactful and it's easily accessible. And it's something that, you know, we believe that we need inside our organization. We need, you know, individually and, and the world needs. And I think that Clay has, has found some solutions that are, that are really impactful. But it's Impact Suite. That's, that's so much. What's the website for it? I should know this. So it's impactsuite.com. It is. Okay. <laughs> I think that. <laughs> There's been some name changes recently. So, but yeah. Impactsweet.com. Yeah. Listen, this has been so fun. Anything else you want to cover before? No, before thank you. It? And I really appreciate and grateful for the opportunity. It's good to meet you. I'm kind of surprised that we haven't met till now, especially with all the convergence of a lot of things. So I'm looking forward to what comes after. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. And we'll sign off here. Thanks. Bye.